I uh, have to make a confession here this morning. I forgot to tuck in my shirt before we started, but I, then I realized that most of you are still probably in pajama pants. So I think I'm in good company here this morning. And uh, it's and it's been an interesting uh, morning. I was just realizing as I sing that if I mess up, the internet is forever. So uh, it's kind of one of those things that you just get a little nervous about. Hey, it's a great joy for us to be together, even in the slightest sense, on this Resurrection Sunday. And so it's a celebration today of God's goodness and His mercy in the resurrection of Jesus that you and I, if we have faith in Christ, are forgiven our sin, forgiven our transgressions, raised to new life, not in the future, but right here, right now. We are raised to new life in that we can now fulfill God's law, God's good, and He's gracious to us. I want to pray that God uses our time this morning and that he allows us uh, to just maximize our time. Lord, we thank you for your grace and your kindness. So speak to us through your word. Allow us to hear from you, to know of your power and resurrection. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I was reading recently a book by Mike Cosper. And he was talking about how he went to Jerusalem, into the Holy Land, and he, um, he visited this, this holy site called the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. It's right there in Jerusalem. And if you're familiar with it, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre contains both the scenes of Golgotha, that's the, the place where Jesus was crucified, and the scene for the empty tomb. And he said, you know, you go into this place and it's just packed with people. And there's all kinds of tourists just kind of milling around, looking at all of these different sites in this courtyard of this church. And he said what he, what he decided to do in that particular day is he went to the back of this courtyard and just decided to watch people as they came and they looked at these holy sites, as they came to these different uh, icons as they were um, and, and tried to worship there. And he's watching them and he, he recorded three different people uh, that kind of stood out to him. He said the first was this lady who, who when she sees this uh, religious site, just falls on her knees and begins weeping out loud. Uh, it's just absolutely responsive to the weight and the majesty of this, this place that she's worshiping at. The second person is the, an older woman who has bought a number of these little trinket plastic crosses. And she's taking these crosses and she's rubbing them on the, the places, these uh, places of worship that are there, on the stones where Jesus stood or, uh, you know, on these different parts of this, uh, of this uh, religious experience. And finally, there's a guy there who has his selfie stick and he's holding up peace signs and he's taking selfies of himself at these places where Jesus literally died, was buried. And it just kind of stand, stood out to me as, as I'm reading this passage that there are so many responses to our faith, right? There are many different responses to the claims of Christ. There are many different responses that we might have, even in the religious kind of uh, sphere, ways we can respond to the claims of Jesus, the death, burial, and resurrection of the Son of God. Some of us, you know, we border on superstition. We, we border on um, just kind of like this... Uh, 
you know, otherworldly mentality that if we just kind of rub the crosses on the holy sites and we pass those out to our friends, that they're going to be blessings. We, we like or share a picture of a weeping Jesus uh, in hopes that it brings blessing to us, right? Others of us, we, we believe in a Jesus that fits neat, neatly into a world of, of selfies, of you know the selfie sticks and the peace sign uh, Jesus kind of fits and we accommodate him into that world of of us of meism but we we kind of have a little bit of Jesus on the side and still others are genuinely emotional genuinely uh, changed by the experience which of these responses are adequate which of these are right and how can we say with surety that one is better than the other? See, this morning, as we look at John chapter 20, I want to see not just the resurrection of Jesus, but John actually records uh, three different responses to Jesus so that we can get the sense of, of exactly what God wanted to accomplish in his people through the resurrection. So here's our big idea. If you got the bulletin in your email, the, the bulletin and outline, or the big idea and the outline are in your bulletin there, here's our big idea though, right? Jesus' resurrection demands that we see and believe. Jesus' resurrection demands that we see and that we believe. And we're going to see this in, in three different phases. That First, Jesus' tomb is empty in verses 1 through 10 of John chapter 20. And then verses 11 through 29 are going to say that Jesus' resurrection addresses our difficulties. These are the three accounts that we're going to look at. And then finally, in verses 30 through 31, John's going to tell us exactly why he recorded these observations. That the resurrection is about salvation. And so we want to dive right into John chapter 20. I'm going to read these verses that Brian just read for us. And we're going to see our first major point here that, that the Jesus tomb is empty. Listen to John chapter 20 verses 1 through 10. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. I love how John just kind of sticks it to Peter there, right? I'm faster than you. Verse 5, And stopping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciples who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scriptures, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes." Consider the evidence that's just kind of laid out here for us in John chapter 20, verses 1 through 10. Just take in the evidence as it's brought to us. First, a, a woman goes to the tomb. And we recognize that in the first century, a, a woman probably wouldn't be the eyewitness you would want. Uh, they were kind of marginalized in society. People uh, said various things about females that, you know, you can understand how that works. But uh, that probably wouldn't have been the person that if you were going to stage a resurrection from the dead, you wouldn't hang it on the account of one lone female. 
Yet this is exactly what happens in John chapter 20. Mary Magdalene comes to the tomb, probably to mourn one last time. And what she finds is she finds this massive stone rolled away from the entryway of the tomb. This massive stone that would take two or three men to move, and it's moved away. In fact, as you look at this this section, the word tomb is used some six times throughout these ten verses, highlighting the idea that this tomb is now empty. Secondly, we see the word cloths used four times in verses uh, five and six and seven. And really what this is highlighting is that if someone was going to rob a grave of a body, why would they strip off the grave clothes? That wouldn't make any sense, would it? So if you're going to rob a grave, you wouldn't take the grave clothes. But even beyond that, the, the, the face cloth specifically is kind of folded neatly by itself in verse 7 off to the side to say that someone took time and intention to kind of slowly take the face mask off, slowly fold it and set it aside, and then to take off the grave clothes. You see, all of the evidence here points not to a grave robbery, but to the resurrection of someone who was dead but is now alive, Jesus Christ. But we might miss something here. We might say that Jesus is the central character or even Mary, but really what this passage centers on is not Mary or Jesus even. It's really centering on the reaction of John. We, we see that John runs to the tomb, that he outruns Peter, and yet he, he stays outside while Peter uh, kind of dives right in and, and jumps in and, and investigates. But specifically, when we get to verse 8, John, the disciple, records for us that he saw and that he believed. This is going to be uh, something that kind of just casts light across this whole passage that John himself, even though he'd spent three years with Jesus, now sees, now uh, understands, now comprehends exactly what Jesus had said, so that now he's believing, now he is trusting for the first time. We, we see that Jesus or that John is highlighting for us this belief in Jesus that would see the account of the resurrection and would respond in faith. We might think that those wording, that wording there, saw and believed, is, is not really a big deal. But let's stop and consider for just a moment uh, that John has, has seen Christ, has lived around Christ, and is now responding in faith. See, naturally, sometimes you and I, we see but don't believe. This is what, what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 1, right? Romans chapter 1 and verse 19, for uh, what, we, what can be known about God is plain to them. That's to us. Because God has shown it to them. Now, wait a minute. Just think about this for a second. God has shown us something. Now, look at what verse 20 of Romans chapter 1 says. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. See, you and I, because we're human, because we're made in God's image, we see with our eyes the creation of the world. We know that God exists, and yet we don't see, we don't believe. Just like John running into the tomb, we, we've seen lots of things, but we've not necessarily believed. And what Romans 1 goes on to say is that they say, although we knew God, we did not honor him as God. I mean, isn't that an interesting statement? 
that's such a fascinating statement that, that God would say to us that we see and know God in terms of a cognitive understanding, but we don't honor God. Is that the disconnect that John is describing here? A cognitive understanding, but necessarily, not necessarily believing the words about Jesus' resurrection from the dead. See, we choose not to honor God because we have something more important to honor ourselves. We choose to honor our desires, to honor our wants instead. And it blinds us to the glory of Jesus Christ. The passage is going to go on. And it's going to describe these three different responses to the resurrection in verses 11 through 29. So I want to read, or excuse me, verses 11 through 18. I want to read these verses and see the first account here in verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was him. And Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary, she, uh, Mary, she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. See, Mary is operating under the pretense that Jesus is still dead. And think about the shock of of what she's taking in here. And in verse 15, it kind of highlights it, right? She says to someone that she perceives as the gardener, of this area. She says, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him. Not only is Jesus dead in her mind, now his body has been stolen. And so she is just in absolute shock. And what happens is Jesus starts questioning her again in verse 15. He said, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? To kind of highlight, just to bring to the surface in Mary, what exactly is going on in your heart? See, first for Jesus, or for Mary, Jesus was dead And now he's stolen. Remember, Mary's the one who got up early in the morning to come and mourn Jesus' death at the tomb. She's deeply affected by this loss that she's experiencing. And so what happens then in verses 16 through 18 is that Jesus uh, reveals himself to Mary. Notice what what Jesus says to Mary specifically. Mary has this overwhelming sense of loss, and Jesus speaks to her and says this, But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Jesus speaks into Mary's sense of loss with resurrection, and he says, You've gained a Father. When Mary thought she had lost her Messiah, she actually gained a God. See, this morning, as the resurrection is true, we actually gain hope. 
Now, it just, doesn't just end there. In verses 24 through 29, Jesus wants to speak to Thomas, his doubting, oh, excuse me, in verses 19 through 23, Jesus wants to speak to his disciples' fears. Verse 19, read with me. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And then the disciples uh, were glad that when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Even when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. Uh, if you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. There is so much to comment on here in these words, but we just want to zero in on Thomas and his reaction with Jesus. See, Thomas expresses, not Thomas, the disciples, excuse me, I'm getting lost. The disciples are afraid of these Jews in verse 19. It's a Sunday night, and there they are locked in this room together. Uh, it's the first day of the week, and they're locked inside of this room because their leader was just put to death for insurrection. And so these disciples are afraid that uh, these Jewish leaders and authorities or these Roman authorities are going to do due diligence and take them out as well. And so they're hiding together. They are outcasts. They are uh, dissidents and rebels. And there they are locked up together. And all of a the sudden, there's a, an additional member in their midst. Jesus just shows up in this locked room and he says, peace be with you. He says it twice in verses 19 through 21. Now take that into consideration. Jesus comes amongst the fearful and he proclaims peace. Jesus comes amongst those gathered in fear and he sends them out in mission. Isn't this what he does? In verse 21, as the Father has sent me, even I am sending you. Hey, don't be afraid. Have my peace. We're sending you out on mission. You're not going to just huddle here together in fear. We're going to send you out. The resurrection's changed it, hasn't it? And so Jesus speaks to Mary's loss, and he, she gains a God. Jesus speaks to uh, the disciples' fear and sends them out in mission Finally, in verses 24 through 29, he speaks into Thomas's doubt. Look at verses 24 and so on. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into his, the mark of the nails and place my hand into the side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them, although the door was locked. The doors were locked. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. See, Thomas experiences this doubt in verses 24 and 25. He lays it out pretty clearly. He's saying in verse 25, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my fingers into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. 
Thomas makes his belief contingent upon sight. You see that? Thomas is saying, unless I see with my eyes what, Je- what you are claiming about Jesus, I will never believe. And so what happens is Jesus again shows up in a locked room and shows Thomas his scars and speaks about his belief in verses 26 through 29. Jesus tells Thomas to touch and to see in verse 27. Put your finger here and see my hands. Put your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. That last section is so telling, isn't it? Having now seen, Thomas has two options. There's belief and there's disbelief. See, Jesus' resurrection is reality-changing, isn't it? For all three of these accounts, uh, Jesus interacts with others as if their world had just been shaken to its core. His resurrection has instituted something so revolutionary. For Mary, it's the switch from loss to gain. For the disciples, it's, it's from fear to mission. For Thomas, it's the switch from doubt to belief. Jesus' new life means new living for his disciples. And for you and I, it's the same, right? Jesus' new life means new living for us. Think about the Beatitudes and how they're coming true because of the resurrection of Jesus. Remember when Jesus said this, he said, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. See, Jesus is bringing to bear, bringing to reality these these beatitudes that he promised way back in Matthew chapter 5 so that now the the mourning are comforted. Uh, Those who are persecuted uh, have the kingdom of God and those who are pure in heart are seeing him right before their, their very eyes. We might just move on from these accounts and not consider what John says in verses 30 through 31. See, what happens in verses 30 through 31 is John is going to give us just a a glimpse into the intention that he had for writing these words. He's going to tell us exactly why he has recorded this whole book of John and kind of cut to the chase with us. Look at verse 30. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you may have life in his name. See, our third point is that resurrection is about salvation. And John writes this specifically in verse 31 for three purposes, that we believe that Jesus is God's chosen Messiah, If you were with us in the series in Genesis, God promised in Genesis 3, right after Adam and Eve had sinned and been kicked out of the garden, God had promised them that he would send one who would crush the serpent's head, this chosen one, that uh, all of these generations of Jewish people were looking for this chosen one who would come and redeem Israel. And so Jesus is that chosen one. Jesus is God's Messiah, his anointed one who carries out his work of blessing to his people. So John writes so that we would believe that Jesus is that Messiah. John writes so that we would believe that Jesus is God's own son, right? That's what he says, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God. Do you believe that Jesus is the only begotten son of God? 
that he is unique in all of creation, that nothing in all of the earth stands parallel to the life of Jesus. Jesus pre-existed all of us, and he will exist forever. He is unique amongst mankind as God's holy son. And so he writes that we believe that Jesus is God's Messiah, that we believe that Jesus is God's son, and that we believe so that we may have eternal life. The only means by which we can have eternal life is believing in those previous two things, that Jesus is God's Messiah, that Jesus is God's Son. And so John is kind of funneling it down for us here, saying this is the essence of belief. This is the essence of what it means for us to really soak in the goodness of God in, his, in Jesus' death and resurrection, Oh, we can't be Christian, as it were, if we don't really hang on those two truths, that, that Jesus is God's chosen Messiah, his anointed one, that Jesus is God's own son, the recipient of God's blessing. And if we deny either of those things, or, or even just half-heartedly assent to those things, we might not know God like we think we do. See, belief and Jesus' resurrection should be life-changing. Isn't that what we've seen from this text? See, all of these people, they see, right? Mary sees Jesus as Jesus opens her eyes to understand who he is. The disciples in the upper room, they see Jesus. Thomas sees his scars and puts his finger into his side. We see this all throughout John's account. But it starts in verse 8, the disciple, John, comes into the tomb and he sees and believes. It's interesting to note what Jesus says to Thomas in verse 29. He says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. In fact, John writes to us in, in verses 30 through 31, telling us what he saw that we might believe. We ourselves might not see Jesus with our eyes, but we are getting a dialogue from someone who has seen it with his eyes. This isn't unique in John's writing. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 2, he says, The life, that's Jesus' life, was made manifest, and, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. You see, really then, we have, we have two options. As Jesus says to Thomas, you have two options. You have belief or unbelief. The, the thing that's not an option for you is to say, I believe, but go on living your life with regularity. It's not an option for us to say, we believe, but remain unchanged by resurrection. We have to cling to the promise of resurrection to see that our lives can be made new so that we can see that we can overcome death through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. See, here's the truth this morning is that true belief in Jesus' resurrection is life-altering. Oh, this thing's not working. Anyway, true belief in Jesus' resurrection is life-altering. Altering. Notice all of these people that were around Jesus throughout the last three years are now changed. They've come to a place of belief that fundamentally changes their orientation to their life. They realize that their former view of Jesus, just as teacher, was inadequate. 
It's possible for us to be around Jesus, to be around church, to go to church, to do spiritual things, but not really believe or trust in God's goodness in Christ. Remember, Judas was one who followed Jesus everywhere for three years, yet still remained the son of perdition, the the person who rejected Jesus, who literally sold him for 40 silver coins. See, this is an experience that's so common amongst us. As, my, as a pastor, it's one of my greatest fears that we would have those in our midst who, who speak all the right things, who look all the right ways, but in their hearts, they, they don't bow to the resurrected Jesus. You see, culturally, we're all pro-Jesus, aren't we? we? We love to talk about Jesus, and we love to claim him as kind of this moral epicenter for us. We, we talk about Jesus, you know, the, the loving acceptor of the marginalized. We talk about Jesus as the the wise sage, Jesus, the the dissident who kind of uh, rejected the authority of the Pharisees and scribes. But let's just stop for a second and consider the Jesus of the Bible. Let's see if he stands in contradiction to any of the idols of our heart and see if we also might be changed in our belief. Jesus looks a wealthy man in the eye and he says, unless you go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor, you cannot be my disciple. Jesus prioritizes his kingdom over our wealth. Who tells his disciples that they will be hated as he was hated. Isn't that what he says in John 15, 20? Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Jesus looks at his followers in Luke chapter 9, and he says, if you want to be a disciple, you have to be willing to die to follow me. Luke chapter 9, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. If we are to follow Jesus, if we are to be Christian in that sense, we have to look at the resurrection and be changed in those things and bring our life into conformity with the claims of Jesus. See, I'm concerned that we've turned Jesus into a Frankenstein. Or follow the story of Frankenstein. I wish I was so cultured that I actually read the book, but I haven't. But Frankenstein was this pieced together amalgam of different dead parts of former living creatures. Right? They've, they've pulled a little bit from here and a little bit of there, and they kind of mashed them together to make this monstrosity. Well, isn't that what we do with 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 Jesus, we kind of grab a little bit of Eastern religion, we grab a little bit of spirituality, and we kind of mush them together so that we can have this kind of Frankenstein Jesus. Or Jesus might be like the Weekend at Bernie's Jesus, if you're old enough to know that reference. Weekend at Bernie's is this movie where, where they take a dead man and they walk him around for a weekend trying to act like he's still alive. In our religiosity, we try to make Jesus who, who uh, the Jesus that we've created, which is really dead, and we try to prop him up and act like he's still living. See, but here's the truth this morning, is that Jesus Christ is fully alive. That the echo in the tomb is still resonating throughout all of God's creation, that God is accomplishing through Jesus' resurrection exactly what he had appointed from the beginning of time. And that now you and I, in our transgressions, in our shortcomings before God, can be forgiven of our wrongdoing because of the bloodshed of Jesus. 
And because of the resurrection to new life, we also have hope of eternity because we also might be resurrected to new life. How do we know? How do we know we're not just like that lady rubbing the crosses on the icons? How do we know we're not just like the guy with the selfie stick? How do we know we're not just having an emotional experience that has no rooting in faith? Let's give a diagnostic. I promise this will be short as we kind of wrap things up. To go to other writings of, of John, John writes his first epistle, 1 John, and in chapter 5, he says, I have written these things that you may know that you have eternal life. And so we got to go back and say, well, what has he written? How can we know? Well, really, there's three things that he highlights time and time again in the book of 1 John. First, he says, do we have victory over sin? He says this, he says, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed, keep, or for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. So Christian people should have a desire to do what's right. Excuse me. Secondly, do you confess Jesus to be Christ? Do you confess that Jesus is God in the flesh? 1 John 4, verse 2. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. So the first thing we see is that we hate our sin. The second thing we see is that we confess that Jesus is the Son of God. And then finally, it's the love of believers. Do you love other believers? Do you uh, regularly engage in patterns of, of service, of, of fellowship with other believers in Jesus? 1 John 4 says this, Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. We show our love for Jesus by loving his disciples, by loving our brothers and sisters in Christ. So this morning, as we kind of reflect on all of this, we take inventory of our own hearts and our own minds. And I would call on you if you're saying, I don't know where I stand with the Lord. Reach out to me, uh, email me. You can find it. You can just email us through the Facebook page that you're watching right now. Or you can go to our, uh, our website, gcctroy.com. You can email me, reach out to us. I will get you in contact or get in contact with you or get you in contact with one of our elders so we can talk through it. But we want you to be assured, as, as John is saying in 1 John, that you may know that you have eternal life. In closing this morning, I want to read from Mark 9. In Mark 9, a, a man brings his son to Jesus because Jesus' disciples can't heal him of his demon possession. And this man uh, is having this interaction with Jesus, and, and Jesus said to him in verse, Mark 9, verse 23, Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. I feel like that's a great summary sometimes of what we experience. We, we feel like our faith isn't strong enough. But the important thing about our faith is, is what it is fixed on. The important thing about our faith is its content, not the strength of our faith. Our faith is weak. And what we need to fixate our, our faith upon is the resurrection of Jesus because 
Jesus' resurrection is powerful enough to save even a weak, half-hearted faith. I want to pray this morning that God uses this, this message of resurrection to give us hope, to remind us of his goodness and his mercy to us in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for mercy and kindness. We pray that we might be like Mary. We might be like the disciples. We might be like Thomas, who seeing the account of your resurrection are changed because of it. Lord, accomplish this for your power, or through your power, for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, thanks for logging on with us. We'll see you next Sunday, 10 o'clock, right here. See you later.